Mark 14, 53 through 65. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, they all came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this testimony um, did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. We've entered now the last pages of Mark's gospel, uh, where, where this is the final, not just the final days, but this is the final hour of Jesus's life. And what we've seen in the last few weeks is that things are getting darker and darker and more tragic in the life of Jesus and his disciples. This last week of his life, time kind of slows down and we start to hear more detail, more, uh, more, more detail about this week of his life and ministry more than anything else we've read in the Gospel of Mark because this week is so important. And we've seen that even though things have gotten more tragic and, and, and darker until, each, until the resurrection, each scene we see is just more brutal than the one right before it. And last week, Last week, we saw that Jesus was betrayed by one of his own and arrested. And this morning, we're going to see how he stood trial that night. He stood trial, and there's, there's nothing more intense than being on trial for your life. I try to think of something more intense, more, uh, more nerve-wracking, more anxiety-producing than being on trial for your life. And that's what's happening to Jesus here in our text. That's the scene that's unfolding in this, in this passage. And what we learn about Jesus in this passage, about his true identity here, it changes everything. It changes everything for how we look at the gospel of Mark. It changes everything about how, what we understand about God and the gospel. It changes everything that we, we, we know about us. It's a shocking revelation. We might even call it a scandalous revelation. A scandal is something that is so shocking that it should just make anyone, everyone go like, What? How, how is that? How did that happen? You see, everybody loves baby Jesus in a, in a manger, right? Everyone loves baby Jesus in a manger or meek and mild Jesus or like Jesus is your homeboy Jesus. But what we've learned throughout the gospel of Mark 
is that the true identity of Jesus is just altogether shocking. The true and real Jesus is so much bigger and better than the assumptions that we make about him. We've been saying that time and again throughout the Gospel of Mark. And the very reason that Jesus got betrayed, the very reason that he got arrested, isn't, isn't, is, was that he, didn't, he doesn't like fit in your favorite box, right? That's the reason he got betrayed and arrested. He's not fit in your favorite box, Jesus. He challenged the traditions of the religious elite, showing that, that character was more important than what was on the outside, that heart was more important than just what's in your head. He welcomed and inspired those who were marginalized and the lower class. The left wing didn't like how morally conservative he was. The right wing didn't like how socially progressive he was. This is a Jesus who is bigger than the categories that we try to sort of force him into. His bigness, his nature demands a response, demands worship from us. He's calm the storms and make demons tremble, Jesus. He's forgive your sins, Jesus. He's deny yourself if you want any part in the kingdom, Jesus. And so for all these reasons and more, there's this growing hostility throughout the gospel of Mark towards him. As he's out teaching, as he's out performing these feats and miracles, as people are learning more about who he is, there's this growing hostility, and it just grows and grows until it ultimately culminates in this trial for his life. I want you to feel how intense this moment must have been for him. I want you to feel how intense this hour must have been for those who've been following him, who watched him get dragged away by this army. I want you to feel how intense this moment must be for everyone sitting in this room wondering what he's going to say, how he's going to respond, because it's not just what Jesus is on trial for and accused of, but it's how he responds that adds to the intensity of this passage. It's how he responds that actually adds to the intensity of just who he is. And so our text is filled with these shocking realities that get revealed, these scandalous realities. And I want to give you my four points we're going to go through up front. First, we're going to look at the Sanhedrin. That's the name of the council, the, the Sanhedrin scandalous trial. Secondly, Jesus' scandalous confession. Thirdly, Peter's scandalous denial. And lastly, what that tells us about God's scandalous grace. First, the Sanhedrin's scandalous trial. Read beginning in verse 53 with me. It says they, this is the, the army that has dragged Jesus out of the Garden of Gethsemane. They led Jesus to the high priest. We don't see in this text, but we know from other gospels that the high priest is this guy named Caiaphas. So they led Jesus to Caiaphas, the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, they all came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of that high priest. And, and he, Peter, was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And I'll stop really quick right there. I want you to picture the scene here. All right? Jesus has just been arrested. He was he was betrayed by Judas, who one of his closest followers who came up to him betrayed him with a kiss. 
And then this army comes. They say, you know, the one that Judas kisses, that's, that's who this Jesus guy is. And so they, they know who he is. They grab him. They drag him away. He's dragged off by an army of men to an- answer to a man called the high priest in verse 53. And, and also in verse 53, we see that all the other top priests, all the elders and all the scribes who were the experts in the religious laws, they all come out to, to see Jesus stand trial. And meanwhile, right there in verse 44 or 54, Peter, the disciple of Jesus, he's following from a distance as they're dragging him away. And then when everyone gets to this high priest's house, a group of them built a fire there to keep themselves warm just until the trial ends. And Peter's right there, and he's trying to blend in, trying to figure out what do I do in this situation. And here's what you need to know about this trial. First, this trial happened immediately, off schedule, right? Like they dragged him away in the middle of the night and took him straight to this place. So it happens immediately. It happens at night and it happens in secret and under the cover of darkness. Now, everything about that should smell fishy to you, right? Everything about this should feel suspect. This is not due process. This is not due process for Jesus. These guys have an agenda. And it says all the top priests and, and the scribes and the elders, they all came together. They, they, we know from another gospel, they actually conspired with one another to make sure that they have an airtight case against Jesus. There's literally like nothing legit about this trial it, by, by everything that's described in here, historians will tell us, secular historians will tell us, that, that, that everything that happened and transpired in this trial was how things would go down if, if you were trying to, to hold an illegal trial, a mock trial. And so at every turn... And in every way, this is just an effort from the authorities to legally justify murder. Everything that's happened just shows that what all they're trying to do is find a way for them to legally justify murdering Jesus. That's what's going down here. And so read with me in verse 55 now. It says, now, now the chief priests and the whole council in the Sanhedrin, they were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they found none. So they're going around the crowds, everybody in the room trying to say, like, let's find some offense against Jesus to put him to death. And they couldn't find one. And so verse 56 says, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. It was pretty obvious they were making things up. The idea here is that when you can't get a group of key prosecution witnesses to agree, you have to throw the case out, right? Is that what they do? No. They don't do that. Read verse 57. It says, and some of them stood up. So they stood up officially, and they continued to bear false witness. They lied against him, against Jesus, saying, we heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So this verse tells us the main prosecuting charge here that they're going to run with is that Jesus threatened to destroy the temple, which of course would be an act of vandalism and an act of blasphemy. The problem is that Jesus never said that. 
Jesus never said that. Jesus predicted the temple would be destroyed in some later date, but he never called for it to be destroyed. And Mark tells us that they have, they have, to, they have to come up sort of this, this intricate web of lies to try and make their argument, even though, and even still, they just can't keep their story straight. They can't keep their story straight against him. It's a mockery of a trial. It's a mockery of true justice from beginning to end. Every step of the way, something just outrageous was was done. They take him immediately. They take him at night. They hide him. They're searching for witnesses. And when they can't find a witness who has anything credible to say against him, they, they find people who are willing to lie on the stand and even their testimony doesn't add up. But instead of dismissing the case, the high priest, he realizes, you know, he, sh- he should dismiss the case, but he realizes, you know, he's like, you know, this isn't going anywhere. And so at this moment, he stands up himself. Caiaphas stands up and he weighs in. The high priest stands up. He's like the judge in the room. He stands up. He puts Jesus on the witness stand. And says, let's, you know, let's have Jesus speak for himself. Maybe we can trap him this way. Let's have Jesus speak for himself. In verse 60, it says, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Look at how he responds in verse 61. That he, Jesus, remained what? Silence. He remained silent and made no answer. Jesus, with all these accusations being lobbed against him, he remained silent. He refuses to address the lies charged against him. I mean, what could he say, right? He knows this whole thing is a joke. He knows this whole thing's a mockery of their justice system. Not a single legitimate charge has come against him. And he knows that. They're talking about it right there. And so he keeps his lip shut. And by biting his lips, his disciples would later draw the connection between this moment and an Old Testament promise of the Messiah. In Isaiah 53, I want you to read it with me. Isaiah 53, 7 says, speaks in a prophetic uttering about the Messiah that would come. This is in the Old Testament, and it says that he, the Messiah to come, was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. He opened not his mouth. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We really dug into that like a couple weeks ago when we talked about the Last Supper, about the communion table, and how when Jesus was observing the Passover feast, you... uh, 
It's, it's crazy that you don't hear anything about the lamb on the table, which is sort of the main course of the Passover feast. And the reason we don't hear about the, the lamb on the table is because it's not so much the lamb that was being eaten on the table, but it was the lamb of God who was sitting at the table. That was the point of that meal. You see, the purpose of the Passover feast in the Old Testament, the reason for all those innocent young animal sacrifices of the Old Testament isn't because God hates cute animals, right? It has nothing to do with that. All of that pointed forward to the fact that an innocent person, an innocent sacrifice, the Lamb of God, would be slain as atonement for sinners. You see, in this moment, Jesus kept his mouth shut. He did not defend himself. He didn't whine. He didn't complain. And to be clear, there's nothing wrong with defending yourself against bullies and against oppression. There's nothing wrong with that. The reason Jesus didn't defend himself is because this was the moment he came for. This was Isaiah 53 embodied in the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, before the Sanhedrin. And so he suffered in silence. He died a tough death, but suffered in silence. And then the high priest goes for the jugular and asks a very direct question that he knows will trap Jesus. Read the rest of it with me. It says, again, the high priest asks him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? He's basically asking if Jesus is the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. And you need to get the context of what's going on here, right? Jesus is on trial, and if all he if all that he does in this moment is say, no, I'm not the Christ, I'm not the promised Messiah, then he might go free. you got to picture how this verse right here, when the high priest stands up, and when the high priest directly asks Jesus, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed? You got to picture how everything just sort of slows down at this moment. This is probably like the most nail-biting, intense moment in the whole passage. This is the question. Everything, everything we've read up to this point, everything that we know about Jesus and the purpose of his life and his ministry and his death that he told his disciples about, which was right around the corner, everything that we know so far hangs in the balance for him with this question. And Jesus, he knows that. He knows it. The priests and elders and scribes that are present, they know it. And so, and so all, all the eyes are on him. All the eyes are on him. They're looking at his facial expressions, wondering what he's going to say, wondering if he's going to cave, wondering how he'll respond. You see, if he doesn't admit 
that he claims to be the Christ, the Son of God, then they're going to have to come up with a plan B to take him down. They're going to have to come up with a new strategy. But at this point, there is no plan B. And so the high priest just goes for it and says, tell us, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the Blessed? And at this crucial moment, Jesus is no longer silent. He he opens up his mouth. He speaks for the first time in this scene in verse 62. Read it with me. Jesus said, I am. I am. And you will see the Son of Man, speaking of himself, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This leads to, to our second point, which is Jesus' scandalous confession. His answer could not be clearer. His answer could not be more direct. Notice he doesn't just say, yeah, that's me, right? No, he says, yes, I am. And you will see the Son of Man, referring to himself as, as the, the, that, that phrase right there, Son of Man, is, is used in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 talks about the judge of all the earth, how he'll, he'll, come to, he'll be called the Son of Man when he comes. And so he says, yes, I am the Christ, and you will see the Son of Man, referring to himself from Daniel 7, seated at the right hand of power. That phrase, right hand of power, is straight out of Psalm 110, which is the most quoted psalm in all the New Testament. It's a psalm that talks about, uh, that talks about the Messiah that would come. It's a psalm that when it uses that phrase, right hand of power, talks about the power that the Christ will have, the authority that will come with. Jesus said, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Clouds of heaven is a very unique phrase in the scriptures. It's not just water vapor like we understand normal clouds to be, but clouds of heaven was a phrase used to talk about like the, like the Shekinah glory of God that came down from the mountain at Sinai. The clouds of heaven had to do with God's power, his presence, the presence of his power, the presence of his glory on display that showed up repeatedly throughout the Old Testament for God's people. Is a symbol of God's voice, a symbol of his authority. And so Jesus says, yes, I am the Christ. I am the Son of the Blessed One, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is a shocking statement. Jesus is flexing with this statement. He's challenging them. You know what he's saying? He's saying way more than what he was asked to confess. He's claiming to be the ruler and judge over all the earth. This is the claim that made him so polarizing. It's a claim to his divine nature. It's a claim to his godness. This is the claim that demands a response from anyone listening. 
This is the claim that Jesus has authority over all, that he is God. That is the claim that demands a response from everyone listening. That is the claim that demands a response from us. You see, a lot of people will say, when they dig into the history and geography of, of, of Jesus, I mean, you see like every other month, like National uh, uh, Geographic or actually the Discovery Channel will do like a special on something related to the life of Jesus, right? Like it's because you can't deny that there was a man named Jesus who existed 2,000 years ago. And what most people today will say is like, you know, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus that he was a real person, but I kind of think he's more of like a revolutionary or... Uh, or more of like a, like a good teacher, a really, a really good teacher, a really moral person. But as C.S. Lewis pointed out, you can't, just, you, you, you can't just say that he's a moral teacher or a good man because a good man would never claim to be God, right? I want to read, read this quote from, from Lewis. Lewis says, He, Christ, was never regarded as just a mere moral teacher, He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects. Hatred, terror, or adoration, worship. There was no trace of people expressing just mild approval of Jesus in the first century. No trace of people. Every secular historian writing what's unfolding in the Near East in the first century, nobody has an opinion of just mild approval on who the historic Jesus is. Why? Because this man claimed to be God. This man called himself the judge over all, the righteous ruler over all. That's what makes this trial and what Jesus says at this trial so scandalous. The judge over all is the one being judged. If you can't call that scandalous, I don't know what you can The judge overall is the one being judged. Like, you should find that fascinating. That God comes down to earth in the person of Jesus, and we put him on trial. You know what? That's not unlike what we still do to this day. People judge Jesus all the time. They say, you know, Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life. And we ask, are you really? I mean, you say you're the way, the truth, the life? Like, isn't that a little intolerant? A little narrow? When was the last time that, 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 that you put Jesus on the dock? When was the last time you put Jesus on trial where you said, you know, Jesus, are, are you really so great and so sovereign that, that, that I don't have to stress out right now? That I don't, I don't have to be in control? Jesus, are you so good and so satisfying like you say you are that I don't really have to look anywhere else for my satisfaction to feel okay and right in this world? 
Jesus, you say that you're gracious, but are you really so gracious that I don't have to some way impress you or impress others, that I don't have to earn my way into your family, into your kingdom? You see, Jesus says, no, you're not the judge. Jesus says, I'm the judge. He says, I am the judge, the son of man who comes with the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. Why does he use that imagery? Why does he use that imagery about him being like the judge, one who has authority over all? I mean, it's not cold and calloused, right? Like to think of Jesus, why does he use that imagery? But this is a calculated statement. You see, the scandal of this moment is that these people appear to be sitting in judgment over Jesus, but one day he will sit in judgment over them. And Jesus is saying that he is the judge, not you. He's saying he is the judge, not them. That's what theologians have called like an oh snap moment, right? Jesus is letting the proverbial gauntlet come down with this revelation, with this confession. He should be in the judgment seat. We should be in the chains before him. He should be in the judge's box, and we should be the ones standing in trial. And so how do people in that room, how do they respond to Jesus's confession that, that he is the God, ruler, judge over all? How do they respond? Remember what Lewis said? Either respond in hatred, terror, or adoration. I want you to see how they respond in verse 63 to 65. It says the high priest, Caiaphas, he tore his garments. And he said, what further witnesses do we need? So he's, he's, he's so upset that he, he, he tears off his garments. That was a way to express your disdain for something back then. He tears his garments and says, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they, the council in the Sanhedrin, they all condemned him as deserving death. Hatred. That's how they respond. Verse 65, some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And so this, this picture here is that they blindfold him. They're, they're, they're punching him in, in the places. And they're saying, hey, you know, you're a prophet. You know, you claim to know everything. Who just hit you, right? That's the game that they're playing with him. The guards received him with blows. Not, not even six days earlier, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, all these people who'd been hearing about him received him with worship, with adoration. They take palm branches, in, which is what they, they would do to honor royalty. Jesus is coming in humbly, meek, on a donkey. And they're, they're waving palm branches on the road to, to protect the road that he, he walks on. Not even a week earlier, these, the group of people in the city were receiving him with honor. Verse 65, the guards received him with, with blows. 
they start to beat him, spit on him, kick him. Jesus' confession was almost like his last appeal to soften their hardened hearts. He knew that responding the way that he did would probably secure his death. And at that moment, they just begin letting him have it. Scandalous. And then finally, when that other shoe drops, they start hitting him. He's defenseless. The judge of all the world became a victim to a mob of bullies with no witnesses around other than the oversight of a few corrupt religious leaders. You see, some of you, some of us have, 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 have been in situations where we've been abused and, and, and beaten and taken advantage of by others. The Bible tells us that we have a great high priest a great high priest, unlike Caiaphas, who was a coward. But Jesus, the true high priest, and our high priest, Jesus, can sympathize with our pain, can sympathize with the bullying, can sympathize with our weaknesses. He's been there. He's been there times a million. And it's shocking, it's scandalous, it's tragic, and as if it couldn't get worse, we see in the next verses that it actually does. That it actually does get worse with Peter's scandalous denial. Peter's scandalous denial. Just when you think it could not get possibly worse, it does in these next several verses. In verses 66 through 72, that those verses take place in the courtyard below. Remember Peter? He was following at a distance trying to figure out like what he should do in this situation. And he, he sees a group of the guards and the crowd warming themselves around a fire, and he goes and, and inserts himself there and tries to sort of like blend in. Remember that moment? So at, at this point, We've been in the, in, the, in, in the room upstairs in, in, in Caiaphas' house. And so you just imagine like the, the drone camera sort of like zooming out from that situation and, 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 and coming down below. The camera zooming out from the chaotic room, the trial upstairs, to the courtyard outside and below. And while that's going on upstairs, here's what's going on in the courtyard. Verse 66. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, Hey, you, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. The man from Nazareth, Jesus, like the, the guy that's on trial upstairs, you were with him. Verse 68, but he, Peter, denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. You see, she, she recognizes him as somebody, she says, you were with the Nazarene, Jesus. Man, she has no idea. She has no idea how, how true that statement was. Like, he was with Jesus in the truest sense of that word. 
There's an there's a old pastor writer named Gunther Kralman, which is an incredible name. But he, uh, he wrote about how like one of the most beautiful things about uh, being a disciple of Jesus is, is, is your witness with him. That you are with Jesus. And, and Peter understood, unlike most people, Peter had a unique sort of perspective on what it meant to truly be with Jesus. And so she's asking the question, hey, like, I saw you with him thinking like, you know, at this one particular moment, you guys were together. But she has no idea how with Jesus Peter really was. Peter was a man who walked with Jesus for three years, a man who left his job as a fisherman and spent every hour with Jesus from that moment on. This was a man, Peter was a man who taught, was taught the scriptures by Jesus himself. Jesus wasn't just his, his teacher, Jesus was his rabbi that he followed, that he apprenticed under. Peter was a man who saw Jesus perform miracles. Peter was the one who walked on water after Jesus to to meet him out on the sea. Peter was a man who collected loaves and fish for Jesus. Peter was a man who who Jesus healed his mother-in-law on one occasion. He was a man who was invited into the inner, inner circle, one of the only three people invited by Jesus to pray with him in the Garden of Gethsemane just a few verses earlier. This was a man, Peter was a man, who a moment earlier told Jesus, no, even when everyone else denies you, I will never deny you. Over my dead body, he says. That Peter is given his moment to shine here, to show how deep his loyalty runs. My dad's been a Clippers fan for way too long. <laughs> He's been a Clippers fan since, since before, ever since like, like Kobe and Shaq were on the same team on the Lakers, Right? It was not a popular time to be a Clippers fan. But man, he would, he would go to these Clippers versus Lakers game and like don his Clippers jersey, right? We might even call that brave. <laughs> a moment to shine to show how deep your loyalty runs. And Peter's here in this moment. It's a much more sober moment. And he's a burly fisherman. He's a rugged dude. He's given an opportunity to show how deep his loyalty runs to Jesus, runs, runs when it comes to Jesus. And yet in this moment, he caves. He caves when he feels the pressure and faces off against two. Little servant girl. Little servant girl. Jesus, just a few verses earlier, last week we saw Jesus told his disciples, you know, the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. Without godly resolve, Peter just caved in the moment. John Calvin describes the weakness of Peter's loyalty in this moment, just sort of the the battle between the spirit and flesh. He says here, we see that it does not take a heavy fight to break a man nor many forces and devices. Whoever is not dependent on God's hand will soon fall at a breath of wind or noise of a falling leaf. 
Peter certainly was no less brave than any of us and had already given no ordinary proof of his high courage, though his boldness was excessive. Yet he does not wait to be brought to the tribunal of the pontiff or until the enemy threatens his violent death, but just at the voice of a young woman. He's scared and straight out denies his master. The scandalous denial from Peter. I want you to notice how these two, these two events going on at the same time, one up above and one down below in the courtyard. I want you to see how these could not be any further contrasted from each other, right? Like upstairs, Jesus bravely, Jesus courageously declared who he truly is, losing his life over it, getting beaten over it. Peter, down below, cowardly denies who he is in relation to Jesus. And he's losing everything because of it. Everything he learned about himself, everything he learned about his God, everything he learned about this world and God's kingdom over the last few years, Peter's giving it all up from the pressure of a little girl. Jesus was everything to him, yet Peter denies him. And not only does he deny Jesus, but he denies the people of Jesus too, the church. Have you ever noticed that when, when you're, you're in this, this place, in, the, in, this, in this place of life where you, you, you're just feeling the temptation to deny Jesus, to, to say that he's no longer important to you, that he's no longer relevant to you, right? Like that you don't, you don't just walk away from your time with Jesus, but you start uh, spending more and more time away from his people, the church, gathering on the Lord's Day meeting and fellowship throughout the week? Have you noticed that those two things start to go hand in hand? Read what the girl says in verse 69. It says the servant girl saw him, saw Peter again. And so it's interesting. You kind of get the sense that like Peter's avoiding her, right? In verse 69, the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. She identifies him as, as part of a group, part of the church, the disciples. Verse 70, but again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are Galilean. But he, Peter, began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know this man of whom you speak. And immediately at that moment, the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter broke down and wept. You see, our tendency is not only to deny Jesus, but to deny his family too. And that's exactly what, what Peter did. Jesus told him, this is going to happen. Peter said, no way, over my dead body. In the space of a few hours, it comes to pass. Peter realizes what Jesus meant when he said, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. You ever just feel like you're not worthy of God's grace? You ever feel like you're just not worthy of God's grace because of the ways that you've, you've sinned against him? The ways that you've betrayed him? I mean, you're not. 
That's why it's called grace, right? We're not worthy of it. But do you ever feel so... Uh, so burdened, so, so, so shackled by either your, your, your current or, or, or your past sins that they just feel that you're, 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 not, you're not worthy enough to, to even receive that free gift. You're not worthy to, to take communion, to be a part of his family because you've betrayed him. You know what I love about Peter's story? Peter clearly screwed up in this passage. I mean, Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter's like right under that, right, when he denied Jesus three times, right after he said that he never would. It's almost like Jesus warned Peter because he wanted Peter to feel the weight of his denial and betrayal that that just made receiving grace from Jesus all the more greater. This is a fantastic picture of the restoring power that grace has. You see, Peter goes from denying the Lord Jesus at his death to preaching at Pentecost in the first chapters of Acts at Jesus' ascension. Peter went, I want you to think about this. Peter went from denying Jesus at the cross to preaching about Jesus when the church burst into human history in the first chapters of Acts. Peter's preaching the first recorded sermon at the ascension. Peter's preaching and thousands of people get saved. In one moment, in one place, multiple churches are planted. I love that. I love that. The restoring power of God's scandalous grace, which leads us to our final concluding point, the scandalous grace of our God. You know what the biggest scandal in this passage is of all? It's that God the judge came down to be judged for sinners like me, like you, like the people there in the Sanhedrin council, like Peter and the others around the warm fire. Jesus, the judge, came down to be judged. The author of life came down to taste death in our place. In our place, condemned, he stood. This is the scandal of God's grace. At every shocking moment in this passage, and there's a lot of them, Every shocking moment, every scandalous moment, we are right there. We are there in our sin. Our sin led him to this slaughter. 
Johann Sebastian Bach, the, the famous uh, classical composer, he, he wrote this, this one song. I forget the, the name of it, uh, but it, 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 uh, uh, it's, got, it's got words in it, and, 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 uh, and the, the music sort of carries it through, through, carries you through the gospel story. And at this point, the choir cries out, who hit you? Who hit you? Who hit you, Jesus? And Bach, when he writes this, 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 this opera, this musical, he, he responds in the narrator's voice and he says, I did. I did. Who hit Jesus? It's not, not, the, not the guy in the story. I did. Me and my sin hit Jesus. That is the scandal of God's grace. Jesus was accused so that, that we could stand absolved of our guilt against a holy God. Jesus was rejected so that we would be received. Jesus was betrayed so that we would be embraced. He took the wrath of God in our place so that we wouldn't have to. Right now, he's taking blows from the guards. In just a few hours, he'll be taking the blow of God's wrath, God's righteous wrath in our place for our sins. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus isn't just up there like a batter deflecting the wrath of God away from us. He absorbs it. He takes it in our place for our sins. Have you noticed that up until this moment in time, Jesus was kind of quiet about his full identity, his true identity? Like everyone had their assumptions about him and and he wanted to reveal his true natures to his disciples, but he wanted to do it gradually. All throughout the gospel of Mark that we've been in over the last year, like we've seen this. Jesus silences demons, casts them out, and then he tells the guy that was once demon-possessed, tell no one. He heals lepers, and, he, lepers, and he's, he says, tell no one. And then in chapter, this happens again and again, and then chapter 8, Peter himself, Peter the denier, Peter in chapter 8 is the first one to confess that he knows Jesus is the Christ. He says, Jesus, you are the Christ, you've got to be. And Jesus charges Peter and the rest of them to kind of keep that under wraps for now. And then he starts talking about how his death is coming around the corner. You see, their view of Jesus, the scandal of who Jesus is, gets bigger and bigger and bigger throughout the Gospel of Mark until it all culminates in this trial. This is the moment for Jesus. This is the hour when he finally publicly openly acknowledges with many people listening in, "Yes, I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. I'm the son of God. I am the one to judge the world." Why now? Why now? Because the hour has come for the judge to be judged. The hour has come for the reason Jesus came in the first place. It is time to drink the cup of God's wrath against our sins.
And so the Lion of Judah, the great Lion of Judah, Jesus Christ, proclaims his godness in all its glory. He says, I am the Christ. I am the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, the rightful judge of the living and of the dead. And with that powerful confession, with that lion-like roar, he secures his death on a cross as a sacrificial lamb. The guards, they beat him. The leaders, they spit on him. The depravity of the human heart is on full display. However, at this moment of depravity, at this moment where the ugliness of sin is on full display, at this same moment, the love of God towards sinners is also on display. You couldn't get louder, clearer than this. The cross was necessary because of their sin, because of my sin, because of our sins. Knowing that changes everything. Changes everything about what we understand about our God, about who Jesus is and how we view ourselves. You see, when you get that, that means God doesn't stand in judgment over us anymore. It also means that we can't stand in judgment over other believers. It also means... In 21st century Orange County, we need to hear this. It also means that we don't stand in judgment over ourselves. The only person who has the right to do that is Jesus himself. And he was judged in your place. So that you can find complete wholeness and security as a son or daughter of the living God of grace. And this also means that as followers of this Christ, we use the little power that we have to defend those that can't defend themselves, to speak up for those who don't have a voice. You see, Jesus is the judge who is judged for you. I want you to marvel at the scandalous grace of that this morning. I want you to marvel at that good news as we take communion and sing. At the very heart of the gospel is a man who had infinite power overall that gives it up willingly in the service of others. Scandalous. Shocking. In a moment, we're going to break bread and drink from the cup as we take the communion meal. And when we do that, I want you to marvel at the grace of Jesus, the lion who came as a lamb to be slain, the judge who says, I'm going to deal with the evil in your heart that separates you from a holy God, not by bringing judgment upon you, but by bearing judgment upon my own body. Jesus says when we break the bread, 
we remember his body broken. When we drink from the cup, we remember his blood spilled. And so now let's celebrate that, remember that in singing and in communion, knowing that we are free and redeemed because of Jesus. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.